As we begin Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be looking at uh, these these themes, which seem contradictory, but our Lord teaches so clearly about them. And uh, the themes are humility and greatness. And uh, in Matthew 18, we really reach uh, what is the fourth of the major teaching discourses of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And if you remember way back, if you've been with us the whole time, uh, you'll remember that the book of Matthew is sort of ordered around these teaching discourses. And you'll you'll have a, a section of teaching and then some miracles and a section of teaching and then some miracles. Well, we've, we've reached now the fourth one of those. And uh, the first one, of course, we saw was the great Sermon on the Mount. And uh, which we learned what it was like or what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, uh, to have his true righteousness, and and what it looks like to come to him humble, poor in spirit, broken, needy, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, and what it looks like to be truly blessed. After that, in uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, we saw Jesus' teaching section to his disciples uh, before he sent them out on their first uh, teaching and preaching adventure, so to speak. Uh, their, their first expedition out uh, on their own, with, of course, gifted with his power and taught by him. And, uh, and there we learned uh, that we should continually fear God rather than men. Uh, we learned that for the first time, truly, in order to follow Jesus, it involves death to self, a carrying of the cross, and uh, as we looked at a few weeks ago, that death march that leads truly to life. Well, the third section of teaching was, was if you remember, the, the kingdom parables. And uh, those are pretty vivid, always very interesting. And uh, in short, we learned how the kingdom of God grows and spreads. We learned about the different kinds of, of hearts as the truth is sown into the seed of, of human lives. Uh, and we learned that the kingdom of God may have started with small beginnings, but it grows miraculously, sort of like the little pinch of yeast in a lump of dough. Well, here again in Matthew 18, as we start this fourth, uh, this fourth teaching discourse, Jesus is again speaking about what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. And the themes in this whole chapter are, are pretty basic. Uh, you could boil it down almost to just two things. And those two things would be humility and the idea of forgiveness. And there are other points of teaching in Matthew 18, but, but of those two seems to be the major emphasis. And also in both of those things, humility and forgiveness, we see them in two different ways. We see, and we will see greatly today, a need for humility on our part, but we also will see the, the stooping down, uh, the lowering, so to speak, the, the humbling that our Lord himself undertook in seeking and saving us. And in terms of forgiveness, in the weeks to come, we'll see, of course, a great need for us to exhibit forgiveness, as well as seeing the master exhibit the supreme example of forgiveness to his own children. We're going to start in verse number one, and I'm going to admit this morning that I think I have uh, more notes than I have time. And uh, you might say, I think you have more notes than you have time a lot more weeks than just this week. Uh, so we're going to start in verse 1, and uh, we'll see where how far we get. I have a feeling that we won't get through 
verse 14, which is what you'll find on your on your outline. Uh, but Lord willing, uh, we'll still focus on him and see his glory in this text. So uh, we're going to see as a, the main idea for this morning is this. In the rubric of Christ's kingdom, humility is a true measure of greatness. May we humble ourselves before the Lord and like our Lord. And before we get into the passage this morning, let's pause for prayer. Lord, thank you for this day that we can gather. Thank you for the time of worship. Uh, Thank you that we can, with all creation, cry out, praise the Lord. And because you are worthy of our praise, we can cry out, take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated to you. And we offer ourselves, as as Paul told us, as a, a living sacrifice of our acceptable worship. And Lord, we all are made often aware of our weakness, of our inability, of our of our smallness, of our insufficiency, and in all those things we can say, we will arise and go to Jesus. And you will embrace us, Lord. So as we as we look at the passage before us this morning, there there will be, Lord, I, I, I know, as you've already dealt with me in this way, there will be an element of conviction regarding our own attitudes. But as quickly as we see and feel that conviction, Lord, would we run again to you? And you will embrace us, forgive us, and you will give us strength to carry on. And uh, may we rely on you even now as we look into your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Humility and greatness. Humility and greatness. Seems like total opposites. And it probably would seem that way to the disciples as well as they approached the Lord and they asked him a question. And that's where we'll start. The first thing we see in this passage is humility before the face of the Lord. Look with me, if you will, at uh, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's stop there. We see the disciples coming to Jesus to ask a question, and uh, and their question has to do with, with how the kingdom operates. All along, the disciples have been hearing teaching from Jesus as he's been saying what they would think were peculiar things about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven things that nobody would have anticipated, things that nobody would have expected. Jesus was altering the viewpoint of many when it came to what God's kingship was going to look like. He became a stumbling stone for for many, many of those who focused their attention on, on national problems or perhaps especially those Pharisees and scribes who were fearful for their positions of power, 
if too many people caught wind of the teaching of this Jesus and followed him. And he was altering the outlook of the disciples as they were following him. And we see, and we've been watching them as they start to pick up on things and they start to learn just exactly what Jesus has been saying all along. Yet there is an element until, or in which until right up to the end that they didn't really have still a full grasp on what God's kingdom was going to look like right there in that moment. An example of that would be just before Jesus' ascension in Acts 1, verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And from that, we get a sense of, of what they're looking for. They say now at this time. In other words, they were hoping for a, a physical manifestation right there and then of God's kingship, of his rulership. They said at this time, will you restore? In other words, they were hoping for some kind of a movement and an overthrow. A lot of them still might have been thinking in terms of overthrowing the Roman government. And they said, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Which tells us that, again, they were still thinking in terms of a national sort of kingdom that's still centered right there in their nation. And here in our text before us, they're still learning as well. And even if their question reveals their lack of understanding, which our questions often do, it is still a very helpful question because of, of the teaching that Jesus gives. The question is, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? At this point, there's probably no doubt in their minds that Jesus is the Messiah. After all, they've they had seen uh, that great confession of Peter that was granted to him by the Father from heaven. Three of them had seen uh, the brightness of the divine transcendent glory shine through Jesus in the transfiguration. They had no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah, but they still wondered, how, how is this all going to play out? If you're the one that's going to bring the kingdom, Lord, then what's it going to look like for us? Do we have positions? Are there, are there places where we can have authority and rule? They asked, who is greatest? Or, or literally, who is the greater one in the kingdom? And there are clues that tell us that they were looking for a name of a person who would be right up there, maybe like the second in command of Jesus. Who? Who is it? Which person? is that is right now who is right now among us who's the one lord that you could say is going to stand out in the kingdom would it be peter the the outspoken leader and spokesperson of the group would it be john the the disciple who jesus loved maybe the more quiet one but the beloved one would it be nathaniel the one that which jesus saw sitting under the tree and he said behold an israelite in whom there is no guile would it be Matthew, the former tax collector who had been converted but still had some idea of how the kingdom could work financially speaking? Whatever they were thinking, we should have some element of sympathy for them, even though it wasn't a, the right question. Because how could they not be wondering this to, to some regard? 
if you were recruited personally by the one who is going to set up God's kingdom, you might wonder if he had a special place for you in that kingdom. They were chosen specifically by name out of multitudes of people. They were called to walk with him and learn from him. They were in the aura, you could say, of greatness. The greatest individual who ever walked on the face of the earth was their Lord. Yet, none of them were great. They were from lowly origins, commoners, fishermen, a despised tax collector. None of them were powerful. Nine of them had just failed to cast out a demon, something that Jesus had previously empowered them to do. They were not wealthy. They often did not have food. And if you remember from our last text, it seems like they might not have even had enough money for Jesus to pay the temple tax. He had to perform a miracle to get it. They were not eloquent. They had no course in, in public speech or communication like we might today. And, and they didn't sit at the feet of, of the great rabbis, other than Jesus, of course, of that day. They were not great. Yet something in them was seeking to know. Who's going to be great in the kingdom? And to that question, Jesus gives them this lesson. Verse number two. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Now, if ever there were an object lesson, it would be this. Jesus, in his candor and in his wisdom, calls a, a little boy. And the word for child usually a, a kid that's seven years old or less, and he calls, little child, come here. And he puts them in the middle of this group of disciples, squarely in the center. And if you imagine a circle of, of grown men with a little boy in the middle, the comparison of that child to those men would be easy to see. To the disciples, that little child probably looked weak and insignificant. I'm sure he looked confused, probably frightened. He probably looked to these disciples naive and timid. And that was exactly the point. In seeing the insignificance and characteristic smallness of that little boy, the disciples received their answer. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The greatest are those who become like this little one. Small, insignificant, weak, timid, naive, a little scared. But nevertheless, answering Jesus' call. 
Now, of course, the object lesson was not given in silence. I like to imagine maybe Jesus gave him a moment to wonder, what is, what's he doing? What's this little boy here for? But Jesus spoke and he expounded on what he had just shown them. And he says in verse three, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives here a lesson, a great lesson in humility. And we see from Jesus' words, the first element of genuine humility involves what we might call repentance or even conversion. Humility before the Lord looks like this. Unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The need for genuine conversion, for for real repentance, which we know from scripture is granted by God and coupled with faith, that need cannot be understated. Have you ever asked a person that you know is a believer or claims to be a believer and you ask them, how long have you been a Christian? And sometimes, maybe many times, you hear the response, well, I've always been a Christian. Now, that may be true in a sense. In other words, if a person is brought up in a Christian home and they've never had to experience a a radical transformation from wickedness and immorality and debauchery to righteousness, maybe they were saved as a young child. But at the same time, on the other side of the coin, just because you've never decided against Christ does not mean that you have turned and become like one of these little ones. In fact, resting upon a good record or having a a Christian upbringing might be an example of exhibiting the very pride that this sort of conversion does away with. This sort of repentance. Nobody is born into the kingdom. Nobody accidentally wanders into the kingdom. Nobody gains access into the kingdom because of the merits of their father and mother or grandfather. Not even pastor's kids get a free pass. Unless you turn and become like one of these little ones. You will by no means enter the kingdom. Jesus, of course, is speaking metaphorically of becoming like a child. He's, he's certainly not saying that only children will be in the kingdom or will be in heaven as we might speak in the future sense. And he's not even saying that all children are automatically in the kingdom. He's comparing the humility and and weakness of the child to the relative pride that we all come to naturally in our hearts. Scripture, of course, has much to say about pride. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, Whoever is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 18, verse 12 says, Before destruction... A man's heart is is haughty, is lifted up, but humility comes before honor. 
in terms of a principle, Jesus isn't saying anything new here, but he's teaching something critical because the first question is, have you ever become like a little child before the Lord, turning from self-reliance, turning from moral good standing to become a lowly person who bows before him? Have you turned your focus from uh, your upbringing, your background, your, your good standard to the fact that before the Lord, we are still found bankrupt and in need of him? Now, you may not remember a time and a place, a date or occasion where you prayed a sinner's prayer or walked an aisle, but in your heart, dear one, in your heart, do you know between you and the Lord, whether it is him you are trusting or whether it's yourself? I would urge you to make that clear. But still, for those of us who have come to that point of conversion, and we praise the Lord for that grace, yet this element of pride versus humility is still a constant battle. So we ask, because it's important for all of us, what does it mean to humble ourselves like a little child? Well, all we're given in the text is the comparison of the child with humility. But we all know some of what it means to be like a little child. One, there's an admittance of weakness. It never ceases to remind me of this kind of teaching when uh, I might ask Michael to pick something up. And he says, too heavy, daddy, it's too heavy. Yeah, you can do it, I can't do it. He has no problem admitting his weakness when he's standing next to his dad, who he knows can pick that thing up. There's also an admittance of, of limitation. You might ask uh, your child to, to read a book and uh, they might say, what? I don't know those words yet. I can't read that book yet. It's too complicated for me. Or I, I don't know how to, uh, to count to a thousand yet. Or no, I don't know how to clean my room. That might not be true though. <laughs> but nevertheless, there's an admittance of limitation. There's no false aura of I can do anything. Yeah, I don't need anybody's help. Uh, another, and maybe this is even closer to the heart of what we're getting at, there's a readiness to believe what our father or mother tells us. As I was studying this week and thinking of these comparisons, I was sort of wrought with this great, uh, maybe humility is a good word, but maybe just, just overwhelmed with a sense of stewardship that parents have and being able to instill certain, not just standards, but certain assumptions, a certain worldview, a certain base set of answers in our children that when as a three, four or five-year-old, we tell our kids that God created the heaven and earth, they don't have any trouble believing that. And if they're ever going to change their mind, they're gonna to have to come to a point where they say, I don't believe what my parents told me anymore they will come to that realization. 
And it's not the power of a mom and dad to convince them. It's just that fact that a child is ready to believe what their parents will tell them is true. They have every reason, if they have a, a decent home, to believe that their parents have their best in mind, that they're not going to steer them wrong, that even if they don't understand, there is an expected outcome, that whatever mom and dad are telling me to do, I might not like it, but they probably know what's best. And as a child becomes older, and maybe especially as teenagers, those, those assumptions aren't so clear and easy. But as a little child, there's not a whole lot of room for logic to get in the way of just listening. A readiness to believe what our Father tells us. Also, there's a real understanding and appreciation of, of consequences. Independency. When you know that mom and dad give you everything, you may be more inclined to listen to them because they can take it away too. Now, are all these things true of us before the Lord? Shouldn't there be an admittance of weakness before him? Shouldn't there be an admittance of limitation? Shouldn't there be a readiness to believe what he's told us? And shouldn't there be a real appreciation of, of consequence? Now, these are just a few observations, some basic ones. But this is one of those seemingly paradoxical statements in the Bible. In order to be the greatest, you must be like a little child. Only those like little children will be the greatest. Only those who humble themselves will be raised up. And of course, this theme goes throughout Scripture. James 4 verse 10. We're admonished to humble ourselves before the Lord. And he, meaning he alone, will exalt you. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12. For the sake of Christ, then, he says, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see those paradoxes? Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. When I am weak, then I am strong. Christ's kingdom is, is counterculture, but it's also counter expectation. In order to be of the great in Christ's kingdom, ours is not to build our reputation or our resume or our list of accolades, but rather to humble ourselves, to admit our weakness, our limitations, be ready to believe, to obey, and to follow. And we ask the question, is our confidence that of a little child who is trusting in his father? Or is our confidence rather in ourselves? Do we boast in our ability or do we quickly recognize our weakness? Dennis read this passage between the sets of songs where Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that, in order that, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Do you see how clearly Jesus' teaching comes through Paul's words even here? Uh, Not wise, not mighty, not noble or important, but foolish, weak, low, and despised. And why? So that nobody would be able to boast. And whatever boasting we have, it is only in the Lord. In God's kingdom, the weak shame the strong, and the foolish shame the wise. But listen, we do not do so by becoming like the strong and wise of the world. We do not play their game by getting on their level. No, rather we are taught that the Lord's chosen ones, though weak and lowly and despised, are on a different rule book than the rest of the world. Dear one, is this the kind of humility before the Lord that is evidenced in your life? I'm not asking if you ever have a moment of pride or arrogance. You do. I'm not asking if you ever struggle with a temptation to lift yourself up. I'm asking you, as a rule, before the Lord, do you see yourself like this? Have you turned and become like one of these little ones? Are we quick to build ourselves up and defend ourselves? Or are we more interested in this sort of Christ-like humility? I can think, and I'm going to be transparent here, I can think of no more heinous example of pride than the times in my life when I've sought to prove myself right. And instead, I have proven myself to be an arrogant fool. Have you ever had an argument with a a loved one or a spouse? You don't have to answer that. Have you ever had a disagreement where you were just so sure that you were right, that you would stop at almost nothing to prove that you were right? Well, it's pretty embarrassing after having made a fool of yourself and to go to no stop at no lengths of arguments and demonstrations to then be proven wrong. We all have to eat crow at some times, uh, proverbially speaking. But I have to be honest, that at least in my own experience, there's something even worse than that.
some of the most humiliating and obviously unrighteous experiences I can think of are times where I've gone to great lengths in argument to, to give examples and exasperating myself to prove to my wife that I am right about something. And then I am proven right. And the flesh keeps on going right down the road. I let it come down and bursts out. See, I was right. See how foolish you were? Why didn't you just listen to me? And in that moment, while I may have been technically right on some probably unimportant detail, I could not have been more wrong in terms of what Jesus is teaching here. There is a sense in a situation like that where pride erases any rightness. There's a sense where pride nullifies any merit in you being right. And if it's going to turn out like that, it's better to be wrong and humble than to be right and proven to be arrogant. Because a wrong but humble person can be corrected. But an arrogant person and all of their correctness will miss their need of the Lord. They'll miss their need of becoming like one of these little ones, weak, insignificant, uninformed, timid maybe. Think of it this way. If, if, if we're right about something and we fail to convince someone else that we're right, we haven't really lost anything. If we're truly right and somebody neglects to hear us, then, then the onus is on that person. We've done our duty. However, if you make yourself a, a prideful and arrogant fool in proving your point, you've now sinned in your attempt to be right. And you've still gained nothing. Because just on a personal level, the other person, whether it's your spouse or a friend or one of your children, they may now know that you were right. But they also now know how unkind, uncharitable, overzealous, and rude you are. And spiritually, you may be right even about some point of doctrine, even about some point of morality. But in proving that, you've neglected what Jesus says true righteousness looks like, which is a little child. And even worse than that, is when we find ourselves in that despicable position before the Lord. Which is why James says, humble yourselves, again, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We can say without reservation, the desire to exalt ourselves is sinful pride. The desire to boast in our rightness is sinful pride. The desire to lift ourselves above, up above others is sinful pride. The desire to vindicate ourselves at any cost is sinful pride. And we can glean again from James in chapter 4, verse 6, where he says he gives more grace 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to preface this with something, dear one. I believe that those who are in Christ Jesus, who are saved, who are eternally secure in him, I believe that he will never let us go, that that a true believer who has been converted and brought into spiritual life cannot fall away from that. But, But at the same time, that verse should strike a holy fear in our hearts because it says God actively opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. The Lord's eye is toward the humble, the weak, the lowly, and the despised. Way back in Matthew 5, do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you see it there? Poor, mourning, meek, and hungry, clearly without, clearly bereaved, clearly low, clearly needy. And that is right where we ought to be before the Lord. That is what it is like to be as a little child. That is what constitutes greatness in Christ's kingdom. Whoever, verse 5, receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus then goes on to speak not only about personally humbling ourselves and turning from our pride and self-reliance to him, but he speaks about receiving those who do the same. And the question here might be, is is he talking literally about little children in verse 5, or is he talking about those who become like the little children? Well, I don't think there's any reason to think he's excluding actual little children, but it seems obvious now that he's He's using the term little children to speak of those who have humbled themselves, have come to him like a little child. And there is a sense which Jesus is telling them to change their focus. They want to know who is the greatest, the the flashy and beautiful, the right-hand man in the kingdom. But Jesus is rather telling them to look to the humble. Now, that does certainly include little children. And there's no doubt that Jesus had a place in his mind, certainly for not just the children, but uh, the others who were low and despised in his day and time. Have you ever been in a crowd and you're, you're talking to a person, maybe you're at an event or a gathering, and uh, you're you're conversing with uh, with somebody, and it seems to be the conversation is going along well, they're talking along, and then... Out of the corner of the eye, they catch somebody else that walked in the room, somebody that's maybe more well-known or important than you. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, they just keep saying, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and their eyes are looking over there. And before you know it, they find an excuse to go talk to that person instead. And probably they repeat that same exercise with that person when another more important individual comes into the room. It's a bit of what Jesus is saying here. 
don't have your eyes to who is the greatest and most important in the kingdom and who's the flashiest and the most gifted. Rather, bring in the lowly and humble. Whoever receives them receives, in other words, no less than me. Like James told us again in chapter two, don't show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. And he gives that illustration of a man coming in with bright clothing and jewelry and you he comes in, you say, sit here in the front of the church. Although apparently nobody would like that seat because it is available. Uh, but then a, a poor person comes in and low and despised and you, you might make them sit up here because nobody else wants to sit up here in the front. But uh, all that to say, we naturally are inclined toward partiality. And as soon as we make those kinds of distinctions, we are talking and thinking in terms that Jesus Christ himself does not recognize. We have become a respecter of persons, a slave to partiality, and have yet again exhibited pride in a whole new way. And there's a sense, bringing this back maybe full circle, there's a sense in which we can exhibit that partiality in looking at ourselves and saying, I deserve better than this. I, I deserve to be vindicated here. I, I'm right here. They should listen to me. I should have a voice. Sometimes the high and mighty one, which we look to rather than the poor and humble, is our own selves. Jesus receives the lowly, the despised, the humble. And he says we ought to receive them too. You remember his call in Matthew 11? After he, he thanked the Father, he says, Lord, I, Father, I thank you that you have not chosen the wise, I'm paraphrasing, and the, and the mighty. But rather, you've chosen those who are like little babes. And then he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dear one, if you are here, this teaching of Jesus to turn and become like one of these little children, and you sense now in your mind that no, you never have actually done that. You have been relying on your tradition or your history or your upbringing or your own morality. I would say to you, listen to the call of Christ who says to take on my yoke, to come to me. And for those of us who walk daily with the Lord, yet still struggle with this area of pride, take the yoke of humility and lowliness. Take the yoke of Jesus, who is the ultimate receiver of the weak, of the humble, of the little children. <clears throat> 